Welcome to Something Wicked, where each episode we will discuss topics on true crime, haunted histories, and all things paranormal. This episode, we're talking about spinning heads and snatching kids from their beds. We're diving deep into the world of possession, how and when the beliefs started, and a few cases that will make your skin crawl. So sit back, pop some corn, and turn off those lights. Enjoy. Hello, my lovelies, and welcome back to another exciting episode. Like I said in the intro, we are going to get our hands dirty with the topic of possession. Dun, dun, dun! Woo! <laughs> yes, the majority of it will be about demons and shit, but we are also going into the history of spiritual possession overall. Mostly because as I was doing more and more research on the topic, I found that possession itself does not limit to only negative entities. This phenomena spans damn near our entire human history, as far back as what could be recorded anyway, and let me tell you, it gets weird. So, the definition of possession itself is that, depending on the cultural context in which it is found, possession, whether voluntary or involuntary, may be considered to have beneficial or detrimental effects on the host. It is the belief that an outside force or entity has entered your body and has temporary control over you, and depending on how it came about, depends on the severity of the control. That makes sense. Yeah. And in a 1969 study founded by the National Institute of Mental Health, spirit possession belief was found to exist in 74% sample in 488 societies in all parts of the world. Bullshit. Yeah. So needless to say, this is an occurrence that is reported by millions of people a year and has only been gaining popularity and become an increasing problem among the religious communities. The thought is that the increase, according to our current Pope, is because more and more people are falling out of the belief in religion, mainly Catholicism. And a lot of people are turning more towards things that slight God rather than of him. Yeah, of course, that would be your explanation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for, for a Catholic, that rules overall. So, yeah, I personally believe that's a little bullshit, but it's not my place to judge. You well, do you. One of the biggest things that drives me nuts is when I see like Catholic priests and whatnot talking about exorcisms or speaking with entities of one sort or another and they're like, oh, you invite this into your home by even watching spooky things on TV and all this other stuff and I'm just like you have no idea, man. Yeah, yeah, no, no, pretty much that's what I was getting into. It's like according to the Pope, things like Harry Potter birthstones and metal music turn you towards Satan, but the last time I'm, I checked, I'm not possessed. So, I mean, goosebumps isn't gonna fuck you over for life, man. Yeah. <laughs> but wouldn't that also constitute the whole thing of crazy people don't know they're crazy? Because with possession, it's kind of back and forth. Like, some people claim they know for a fact they're possessed, but there are also more severe cases in which people have no freaking clue what's happening to them. <laughs> I mean, some of that could probably be under the umbrella of DID, but most of it probably isn't. Yeah, yeah, no, that's the thing I'm gonna be bringing up later on, too, is, like, the whole thing of like people misconstruing um things like schizophrenia did stuff like that for possession but that's why there's stipulations there's guidelines of like how you can really tell someone's possessed which an intense mental sense. screening yeah pretty much um but anyway going back to the documented cases we'll start in ancient greece like yeah way the fuck back there a huge part of the belief in cases of possession uh when it came to the ancient greeks is that if a person was possessed by a spirit it was more more than likely the furies or one of the gods they pissed off and are now enjoying the consequences of poking the bear so <laughs> good job yeah the few cases provided were recorded by hippocrates who by today is viewed as the patron of modern medicine who wrote, quote, If he foam at the mouth and kick, Ares is to blame. When at night occurs fears and terrors, delirium, jumping from the bed and rushing out of doors, they say Hecate, the goddess of witchcraft, is attacking. <laughs> End quote. So note to self, do not piss off my matron if I like sleep. Got it. Yeah. And uh, also, pissing off the god of war, probably not a good idea. It's probably one of the worst things you can do in this scenario. Yeah. 
<laughs> Another example being caused by the gods is of Helen of Troy herself. It is possible that Helen was literally possessed by Aphrodite to go on this journey with Paris, her lover, and leave her husband. In the Iliad, Helen confronts Aphrodite when the goddess appears to her, saying, Maddening one, my goddess, oh now what lusting to lure my ruin yet again. Where will you drive me next? Off and away to another grand luxurious cities uh, of Phingia, out of Manoa's tempting country. Have you a favorite mortal man there too? End quote. I know the Iliad is an epic poem that's based on myth and legends, but some of the stories had to be rooted from somewhere and based on the continued accounts um it really makes you think on how the fa on how fact or fake these reports are. I know we're diving into the whole conspiracy side, like how aliens built the pyramids and shit, <laughs> but we are a show about the paranormal that likes to s explore all sides, no matter how ridiculous they sound, and try to find factual evidence. I do believe in ghosts and possessions. Some may not, but based on the research and trying to debunk a lot of shit, there are a few that get my mind going and are unexplainable. Like, I'm not one to hear rattling pipes in my house and automatically go, it's a ghost, but I'm not going to knock the fact when I have physically seen shit and with the possession stuff, I want to know why people try to explain away some of the things that are just too off the wall to be chalked up to things like mental illness or over-dramatization of religious beliefs. Like, sorry for the ranting, but the stuff just deeply fascinates me and I want to understand the lore and evidence from all sides. Yeah. Like, not just, like, one or the other. So, uh, getting back to it, according to the poem, this is basically an admission that Aphrodite is literally controlling Helen. Whether Aphrodite is taking possession of her or Helen is just playing along in order to sleep with Paris, even though he was the one that stole her away, but that's besides the point, or that Aphrodite is controlling Helen completely like a puppet, either way, Helen retains no agency. So, interesting example, even though technically fictional, but like I said, all things are kind of rooted. Um, philosophers in, in the like of... Uh, Apollinus, written around the first century AD, uh, had a description of someone being possessed by a demon rather than a god, saying, quote, and he brought forward a poor woman who interceded in behalf of her child, who was, she said, a boy of 16 years of age, but had been for two years possessed by a phantom. Now the character of the demon was that of a mocker and a liar. Here, one of the sages asked why she said this, and she replied, this child of mine is extremely good looking, and therefore the demon is amorous of him and will not allow him to retain reason, nor will he permit him to go to school or learn archery, nor even remain at home, but drives him out into, des into the desert places, and the boy does not retain his own voice, but speaks in a deep, hollow tone, and he looks at you with other eyes rather than his own. As for myself, I weep over all of this, and I tear up my cheeks, and I rebuke my son so far as I will may, but he does not know me, he does not recognize me, and I made my mind to repair hither. Only the demons discovered himself using my child as a mask, and what he told me was this, that he was the ghost of a man who fell in battle long ago." End quote. So basically this woman <laughs> is saying that the demon possessed her son first and foremost because he got super jelly of the kid's attractiveness and was like, you know what, I'm gonna fuck with him and make him miss school and extracurriculars because I'm ugly and he's not. Which, <laughs> what the fuck? Why would a demon give a shit? Exactly. But yeah, so the signs of possession in this case were a different voice coming out of this kid and his eyes changing color, I think that's what it was describing. I mean, her saying that it used her son as a mask makes me, see, makes me think it's his whole face that changed. But honestly, besides being an angsty teen, to me, there's really not any other factual evidence besides puberty. Yeah, most of that just sounds like that's normal. <laughs> yeah, but this just coincides with the fact that people thought demons existed everywhere, and if you acted even slightly off-kilter, you were obviously possessed. Yeah. Yeah, that tracks. Yeah, yeah. And it just keeps getting worse and worse from that. Like, um, oh god, what is this? <laughs> yeah. No, no, speaking of, we're going from puberty to, like, public drunkenness now. Apparently public drunkenness is the cause of demons, but here we go. <laughs> it's all demons! <laughs> yeah, from, 
from Philostratus, he wrote about a possessed person in Athens saying, quote, Now while Apollonius was discussing the questions of libation in Athens, there chanced to be present in his audience a young dandy who bore so evil a reputation that his conduct had once been the subject of coarse street corner songs. Apollonius was then talking about libations when the youth burst out into loud laughter and quite drowned his voice. Then Apollonius looked at him and said, It is not yourself that perpetrates this insult, but the demon who drives you on without your knowing it. And in fact, the youth was was so uh, with that sorry was without knowing it possessed by a demon, for he would laugh at all things that no one else laughed at, and then he would fall to weeping for no reason at all, and he would talk and sing to himself. Now most people thought it was the boisterous humor of the youth which led him to such excess, but he was really the mouthpiece of a demon, though it only seemed a drunken frolic in which on that occasion he was indulging. Now when Apollonius gazed upon him, the ghosts in him began to utter cries of fear and rage, such as one hears from people who are being branded or racked, and the ghost swore that he would leave the young man alone and never take possession of any man again, end quote. <laughs> that sounds like a manic schizophrenic episode. That yeah. doesn't sound like demonic possession. Schizophrenic, or I don't know, if he's going from laughing to crying to like talking... Bipolar, yeah. Like, yeah. Now, normally, I would say that this dude was drunk that just liked to cause a lot of shenanigans. But if he's starting to scream uncontrollably, like he's being tortured just because some dude is looking at him, he's either tapped because of booze, or other types of drugs, or possessed. But we'll never know, seeing as this doesn't specify whether this Apollonius guy was some kind of sage or spiritualist of any kind to cause so much fear in the demon in this guy that he's just like, you know what? No beef, man. I'm out. <laughs> I won't do it again. It makes me wonder more what kind of presence that Apollonius had rather than if this drunk idiot had a demon in him. Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> Demon's like, fuck this shit, I'm out. Pretty much. <laughs> gotta get the fuck up out of here. Yeah. <laughs> the bottom line is that by the by example, uh, these prove that spiritual whether uh, possession, whether demonic or otherwise, did not in fact get invented by the Judeo-Christian belief that the devil and his minions were out to get you all the time. It's just that it didn't really gain popularity until the Middle Ages when the church ruled over everything. Is that another thing they tried to claim is that demons came from their religion? Is that... Yeah, it was like, the, well, I mean, the widely accepted belief is that demonic possession in itself or spiritual possession in itself is a Judeo-Christian belief because they think that all spirits, like ghosts, demons, stuff like that are just demons. So, and they could, and uh, like, I'm going to get into it, like they get into you in the most insane ways for either certain reasons or no reason at all. Like, you could just be walking down the field picking flowers all of a sudden, mm, I got possessed. Like, what the shit? Yeah, no reason. Like, so, again, it's, 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 again, it's the power that the church held. Yeah, that makes that a lot of sense. That was so ridiculous that everybody was so afraid yeah. of veering off of the path. That they would just like get possessed and then taken over by Satan and then eventually burn in hell for eternity. Yeah, because they designed it that way to just fuck with people's minds and try and keep them as sheep. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Control by fear. That is like the biggest thing they uh, they work with there. Yep. Going into the Middle Ages, the possessed actually had a label for them. They were known as demoniacs. Demoniacs. Yeah. <laughs> what an interesting name. Yeah. So demons themselves were always viewed as violent, malicious, and extremely dangerous. And when you pair this up with the extreme religious paranoia that everyone had in the Middle Ages, it doesn't surprise me that possession ran rampant. Oh, no. Yeah. The problem was, a lot of the times was that a bunch of these people could have been suffering from physical or mental ailments that were not understood because of the lack of medical study. Epilepsy, for one example, is a huge physical impairment that could mimic the flailing and joint locking that you would see in supposedly possessed people. According to a neuroscientist named Dr. Jack Lewis, some accounts were just people that suffered from things like psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia or epilepsy. Ep uh, epilepsy goes through stages, the first being the tonic phase in which the muscles in the body contract and hold for a little while. Then the next phase would be the uh, the clonic phase where the muscles rhythmically contract and then release producing really grotesque movements. 
Epilepsy can also affect coercion, blurring the lines between fantasy and reality, displaying signs of visual or auditory hallucinations, not so much psychosis, more replaying stored memories in the person's mind just outside of their head as if they're watching a home movie or something. Like, actually, they can visually see it playing out. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, so based on that, with the lack of thereof medical advancement i'm again not surprised that when you see a loved one in that time flailing around like linda blair that you, possessed yeah that you think something evil is happening demons were according to the judeo-christian belief originally fallen angels they lost their beauty but did not lose their power this is why they are so dangerous one theory is that when angels fell they fell with such force that it punched a hole in the earth and thus created the pit of hell the demons then were always trying to get back up to earth where they can hassle us all the time because they're pissed off and want to steal our souls to get back at god for casting them out hence holy daddy issues oh man <laughs> after the fall they took on all the brutishness and ugliness of animals projected into their image that's why they look so monstrous to afflicted people they tempt you to sin so they can take your soul and to the layman, demons could be anywhere at any time. They were thought to appear to a normal human being to look like vapor, which were ethereal spirits that were shapeless and could morph into anything. And I mean anything. They could turn into animals, other people, so you didn't know who was a demon and who wasn't. They even turned into food and water, apparently, so now you're willingly putting a demonic entity into your body through the sheer necessity of having sustenance. Talk about meth level paranoia. Food. Yeah. Really. Food. food. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There were reports of people eating bread and butter or lettuce and becoming possessed because they thought that the demon was in the lettuce or transformed itself into a lettuce. Look at my little demon bow bow. <laughs> oh my god. The bow bow speaks to me. <laughs> And as a vapor, oh my god, <laughs> the demons can enter your body through any open orifice. Oh. Any! Oh no. All the fun places. <laughs> Including the fingernails. The, the fingernails. That's, yeah. That's a fun one. Good luck with that. Yeah. You become the host and the demon a spiritual parasite. A person didn't have to be sinful or wicked. Possession is just something that could happen. And once possessed, in the beginning, it's almost always involuntary convulsions, maybe accompanied by fever. Hosts are also accredited to have superhuman strength, and sometimes they had to be restrained. So kind of like a sickness coming on, because your body's trying to fight it. It's like, get out of here, yeet! Yeah. <laughs> Shaking the bed and shit. <laughs> yeah, again, we're going back to the exorcist, where she's like flipping back and forth on the bed frame, and her oh, yeah. mom's freaking the fuck out. Like, I would too. Like, what the hell is happening? Don't worry, mom, I'm just fighting off the demons. Yeah. The only explanation they had for these responses was that the devil was inside them. And once people were convinced that the devil was inside you, the only solution was an exorcism. This process was seen as the ultimate battle between good and evil. Yeah. A benedictional from, the 14, uh, from 1420 specifies the goal of exorcisms as protecting fields and animals from disease. Another contains exorcisms for purifying bells, wax, and palm leaves. There was extensive employment of exorcisms against vermin, insects, and parasites. The exorcisms of people were generally done in public so as to create a spectacle and to draw a crowd. They were often performed in front of a saint's tomb, in front of a church, or town square, so pretty much holy places. Were they charging for this? Because you can probably make a decent amount of money with how many people want to just kind of watch this sort of shit happen. It wouldn't shock me. It wouldn't shock me either. It's like, step right up! See the possessed bitch! Let us fund like, the church for the next year. Build a new roof! Expel the demon! <laughs> oh my god. That would definitely lead <laughs> to a lot of fraudulent claims. Oh god, I know. <laughs> um, from the colonization process of Dorothy of Montu in the 14th century came an account of possession of a young woman through uh, his own testimony stated to her, quote, It happened one time during Lent. He disguised himself with a mask, which he testifies that he made, and that thus disguised, he went out of his house saying, I'm going to commit some sin. Like, 
So you sound like you're either a fun person or just drunk as hell. <laughs> yeah, seriously. He just like put a mask on and it was just like, I'm going to go sitting. Like, Time what? for some shenanigans. <laughs> as he was leaving his house, he met someone else disguised with a mask. He didn't know who it was and he didn't care. So he left and went to a certain brotherhood. So what? a party. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I guess they're just now in a cult. Do we put a mask? <laughs> like, fucking, have you ever seen Eyes Wide Shut? I think I have. Oh my god, that like freaking cult with all the masked people watching each other have sexy shit oh just standing around. Like that's all like when I read that first, when it said brotherhood, I was like, uh, what you getting into, buddy? Like <laughs> I just thought like walking out with a mask, see another person with a mask. Hey bro, hey bro, give yeah. a fuck who you are. We're in a cult now! <laughs> Shenanigans <laughs> What when he got there, he joined the dance, whereupon all the dancing girls and women rushed away from him, terrified on account of the witness being masked or enchanted. When the witness took off his mask, his face was turned around backward. What the fuck? Yeah. And taking his head in his hands, he began to twist his face around to its accustomed place. What the fuck? So, dude just, like, ripped his mask off and was like... Turned into a full demon owl for five seconds. Like, let me just twist myself back right. Like, what? Like, oh shit, sorry, I didn't realize it was on backwards stick. Yeah. <laughs> but as he was unable to do so, he fell down to the ground like a dead man, destitute of reasoning or understanding. That's because he snapped his neck. Oh, yeah. oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! His friends and everyone else standing around while he was on the ground told him that his face was amazingly similar to that of the mask that he had been wearing. Oh. Which, that's creepy as shit, but okay, depending on, again, I don't know what kind of mask he was wearing. Yeah, I wish we got a descriptor of that. But... Yeah, but uh, the witness adds that he firmly believes that the masked man who associated himself with him when he left his house was an evil spirit who left him while he was at the party, end quote. Like, he just thought this dude now, because he, he got this temporary fit of, let me turn my head 180. Like, <laughs> he's like, oh, by the way, I ran into some rando on the street and he's totally a demon because I got drunk and started acting weird. <laughs> What? That's crazy. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't my fault. It was the other masked man. <laughs> it wasn't me. It was those damn kids. <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten. I would have gotten away with it. <laughs> you and you meddling kids. Oh my god. <laughs> Stemming off of just demons, divine possessions were also a thing. There were a shit ton of reports of nuns in the Middle Ages claiming that their wombs were possessed with Jesus. What? Yeah, like legit pregnant with Jesus. And it would cause their stomachs to swell despite not being pregnant. What the hell? <laughs> now, to me, that sounds more like they were out doing the sexy time when they were supposed to have taken a vow of chastity and were like, I got the baby Jeebus in me, like Mary, because they didn't want to get caught. That's just my take. Like, <laughs> I mean, that sounds more plausible than just phantom pregnancy. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> like, again, you're being stuck in that situation. It's like, what if you change your mind and you just kind of go nuts and then, you know, find some dude you want to sleep with and, oops, all of a sudden you're pregnant. Gotta find a way to hide it. Yeah, and I mean, there's enough remedies to get rid of it. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So, both demonic and divine possession almost seemed exclusively to affect women in the Middle Ages and still carries to a lot of cases today. The reason given why women were more likely to be possessed, because it was believed that A, women are inferior to men, thus more susceptible to demonic possession, and B, when it comes to divine possession, a more positive stereotype, that women are pious and innocent, and thus, that's why God or angels choose to inhabit them rather than men. Also. Yeah, like, what? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I am not pious. <laughs> In the slightest. Yeah, you know. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> Moving on rather quickly. <laughs> on August 11th, 1676, in a convent in Sicily's Palma di Monticario, a group of nuns were enjoying a choir performance. When they noticed one of the sisters, Sister Maria, was missing, they left to find her, and they searched everywhere. 
When they went to her living quarters, they got more scared the closer they got to her door. They heard screams and gasps from the other side of the door and flung it open. What they found horrified them. I'm sure they were horrified before they even opened the door. <laughs> yeah, I would shit. be too, walking down the hallway here and some random screams and shit. Either she's getting murdered or attacked or who fucking yeah. knows what. So, Sister Maria Crucifissa della Con- uh, Concenzione, there we go, <laughs> had started, yeah, had started showing disturbing signs way off character for a long time. It began with fainting spells during prayers at the altar in the chapel. She would scream so loud it reverberated off the walls before she passed out. Like, that shit literally vibrated windows and shit. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, Red flag. Yeah. Her behavior became more erratic over time, and she became paranoid and fearful, warning the nuns that the devil would tempt her to serve evil and to turn away from God. At one point, she decided to go to confession in hopes that it would ease her escalating troubles, During this session, her mood changed suddenly, and she began speaking disrespectfully to the priest. She didn't realize her transgression until after the session and became increasingly distraught. A few days later, Maria failed to show up for a choir performance. The night before her absence, Sister Maria was alone in her room. When she began experiencing a slew of fainting spells, more overwhelming than usual, she felt as though a force had taken over her body. Before she knew what she was doing, Maria grabbed some parchment and a quill and began scribbling out strange symbols across the paper, the likes of which no human being had ever seen before. She continued etching out the symbols hours into the night, her mind not fully present, but her hand writing frantically as if driven by a demonic force. This is another phenomena of temporary possession that has been reported by countless people. It's called spirit writing. Uh, where whatever needs to get its message across uh, takes over you as you go into this like trance-like state and words just come out on paper. I've seen videos of people doing this and it's freaking nuts. Yeah, like, I've seen a couple too and the, the like veracity of how they're writing is insane. Yeah, because it's just, it's more of, I understand people can write like super fast, but I've seen it where it's like, it, it's damn near impossible to follow their hands to like even know that they're writing anything legibly, but just words come out. It's, yeah, it's creepy as shit. Um, getting back to Maria, though, by the time that the other nuns found her the next morning, when they had went to her living quarters, she was in such a frightening state, she was almost unrecognizable. She was seated on the floor, exhausted and gasping for breath. The left side of her face smeared black with ink. Besides the shock of her appearance, she was surrounded by pages of a long, bizarre letter, each page containing unintelligible lines of obscure symbols that didn't match any known language. Hmm. Yeah. Unable to stand up, the nuns helped Maria lay on the ground and asked her what had happened. One of the nuns drew up a report of the in- incident, and in it reads, She said that having confessed days before, the demons told her that many words had spoken of irreverence toward her confessor. She saw herself surrounded by a great number of furious evil spirits sent by the order of Infernal Lucifer and taking the paper and the pen that Sister Maria Crucifissa had in order to write, Lucifer was immediately obeyed, and while dictated what he wrote, the words were all against God, end quote. Huh. Yeah, so they literally found her in that room, and apparently, like, either some demons or Satan himself possessed her and decided to write a letter, like, from the actual words of the devil. Like, this is a, this is not a fictional story. This is a legit document Hmm. that they have. Yeah. Um, No one but Sister Maria herself knew the specificity of what the letter said. The only uh, legible word contained, alas, was at the bottom of the page as if Maria had signed the letter off with it. The nuns concluded that the letter was an elaborate scheme by Lucifer to turn Maria away from God. That letter would go on to remain a mystery for over 300 years. That's Like, no one crazy. was able to do it yet. Um, then in 2017, a group of researchers from the Ludum Science Center in Sicily were able to decode most of the pages. Strangely enough, they discovered an algorithm on the dark web that they were able to use to help decipher it, along with a military-grade decryption software program. What the fuck? Yeah, like, that's the shit they had to use That's to, insane! Yeah. Um, the symbols turned out to be a scrambled combination of Arabic, Greek, runic alphabet, and Latin. 
So they were just kind of like jumbled all over the place. Whoa. And mind you, though, these are all languages that Maria had learned in her studies. So it was something that she knew. Possibility. Yeah. Yeah. So while 30% of the letter was still indecipherable, the phrases that were able to be translated were indeed demonic. The phrases have a cynical and irreverent tone throughout. One line reads, God thinks he can free mortals. This system works for no one. The letter goes on to describe God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirits as dead weights that were created by man. It says, quote, God does not exist. Trinity is fake. There is only me. Oh, man. Yeah. Talk about self-centered. Yeah. <laughs> One of the strangest portions of the translated letter cryptically references something not part of Christianity, but the river that separates the living from the underworld, saying, quote, perhaps now sticks is certain. Yeah. Oh, a reference to Greek mythology there. Yeah. See, this is what throws me. Huh. If it's something that she created, and I'll, I'll, t- I'll continue this after I finish like this this segment, basically. Um, I'll get on, in on that again. So, Sister Maria's fate to this day is still unknown. Uh, 435 years later, she'd become mostly a figure of mystery and legend. Ludum Science Center director Danielle Abet... Uh, Daniele Abate was able to construct a psychological profile of Maria that offers a possible medical explanation for her torments. Oh, God. (laughs) She says, quote, I personally believe that the nun had a good command of languages, which allowed her to invent the code and may have suffered from a condition like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, which made her imagine dialogues with the devil. We believe that life as a noble woman, because she was from a noble family before she went into the convent at age 15. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Life as a noble woman in the cloister caused her a lot of psycholo- uh, psychophysical stress, and this letter is the result of bipolar disorder. But we were surprised to have found an overall logical sense, despite the fact that 30% of the document remained incomprehensible, end quote. So she's basically saying that because Maria learned all these languages, she just had a psychotic break. And, like, just one night wrote all this stuff out in her own code and stuff like that. The thing that throws me, like I was saying earlier, is she is a noble woman that was only 15 years old when she went to the cloister. I'm going to assume that being in the Catholic faith, they're not going to teach you Greek mythology. Yeah. Because you would have no reason to know any of that. Yeah, so how in the hell would she know about the River Styx? Yeah. That's the one thing that throws me. And I actually want to know what is on that 30% that was indecipherable. Also, the fact that it was all very consistent, like, encoding and whatnot, that doesn't suggest to me psychotic break. Psychotic break is usually all over the goddamn yeah. And a lot of it, a lot more than just 30% of it would be incomprehensible. It just none of it would really make much sense. There might be a couple things here and there, but overall, yeah, she wouldn't be coherent enough to create this elaborate yeah, hidden code that they would have they had to use dark web and military grade software, decryption software. Yeah. to decipher this. That's like, pretty nuts. That's that that's just the equivalent of I could see if it was like if she like just threw symbols together but didn't actually make any sense or make right. any words. Like she just happened to know the alphabets of each of these languages and just threw something together. Like that's understandable for a psychotic break especially, but to actually make words out, but you have to like figure out the anagram. It's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm like I said I'm really curious what that 30% is that they still haven't fucking figured out. Yeah. Um, Yeah, like, that blows my mind. I want to keep the podcast focused on content that entertains, informs, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. Your support would help the show grow so much, so I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take 30 seconds. It's glow.fm forward slash something wicked. That's glow.fm forward slash S-O-M-E-T-H-I-N-G-W-I-C-K-E-D. 
We're asking for $3 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. If something wicked is part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please go to glow.fm forward slash something wicked and support us any way you can today. It's dead simple and again will take no more than 30 seconds. Click the link in the show notes, pay with Apple or Google Pay, and click the link of the podcast player that you want to use. You can listen anywhere at any time. Happy listening. first cases of actual recorded possession was in the 16th century England, not like the ones from ancient Greece where it may have been a god or some other type of entity fucking with a person, but demonic possession. There was a young girl named Anne Milner who was out in the fields tending to her father's cows. She says that she was suddenly surrounded by a white cloud and was thrown into fear. She thought the cloud was the beginning of an illness. Then a minister from Cambridge came to the conclusion that Anne was possessed. Just... Yeah, I mean, first off, where would you get the it's an illness thing, other than like, maybe I'm going fucking crazy? Or maybe her eyes got cloudy, something oh, yeah, like that. Maybe. But just straight up like, oh, she's possessed because a cloud touched her. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> but it was a foggy day, my friend. Why yeah. are you like... So, besides the superhuman strength, there are a few other signs that determine whether you are possessed or not. There's the speaking in tongues, displaying a variety of languages such as Hebrew, Greek, Latin, etc. Basically languages that the victim would have no prior knowledge to speaking fluently. There's the knowledge of hidden things, where whether it's people's secrets, the kind that no one else but you and maybe a few others know, certainly not the possessed person. This hidden knowledge can be viewed also as a psychic ability. For example, the victim could tell you out of the blue that the necklace you lost three months back is lodged under the spare fridge in your garage, and you're like, how the hell do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> and one of the biggest signs is aversion to sacred objects, i.e. crosses, holy water, etc. This sign I've always been iffy about, though, because if you're going off of this sign alone, it can be faked. Like, say you're put in a situation where some rando person goes to a priest and is like, I'm possessed, help me, and start having a frickin' seizure when his crucifix gets too close to you. Like, <laughs> the only time I really believe that sign uh, that sign is legit uh, when shit like the crosses or pictures of Jesus just fly off the wall or holy water is literally burning their skin. Then I'm like, okay, maybe there's demons. <laughs> it's not just the bitch over-dramatizing me like, I'm possessed out. Yeah. <laughs> One of the first recorded and horrific exorcisms happened in 1585 when a 15-year-old Sarah Williams was believed to be possessed by a demon that was after her soul. Sarah thought she was possessed and was affirmed by other people that she was, and needed the devil cast it out of her. She was unable to cross herself to say Catholic prayers, so like, you know, the whole Father, Son, Holy Spirit thing. Yeah. And in an already fevered atmosphere, people in her house began to worry about her. At the time of this occurrence, with England being ruled by Protestant Queen Elizabeth, and the country was in a grip of religious fervor, Catholics and Protestants were at war, each side desperate to prove that theirs was the true faith, and what better proof than the successful casting out of a demon? Yeah. It's like, I'm better because I can make Satan go back go back to hell faster than you can. Like, what the fuck? Back to hell, demon! The tools used back then were crazy. Besides the obvious holy water, uh, they used holy salt. They made this concoction for the victim to ingest, which is a mixture of rue, vinegar, and wine. This is meant to expel the demon through means of vomiting. Uh, they would make victims take baths in holy water, make them fast, or adhere to specific diets such as only being permitted to eat holy salt or blessed bread. Like... <laughs> I mean, at least there's bread, which is pretty, pretty but good. But making them eat salt? Like... Yeah, no, that sucks. That would make them sick. Yeah, I mean, are you salting the bread? That might be acceptable-ish. Maybe, Maybe yeah. yeah. Early pretzels. <laughs> they would burn objects in a bowl, like feathers, uh, asafetida, powdered root. The fumes are supposed to cause extreme pain to the demon and the victim because it smells horrific. Uh, they read verses from the Bible or ones written by saints or show the victim pictures of saints or a cross. Uh, 
they would use the finger bones of martyred priests that were inserted in the victim's mouth and crucifixes that were touched on various points on the body, specifically the extremities like your arms and legs, because it was believed that if the demon could be driven to the chest cavity, it would have nowhere else to go and the demon could leave out of the orifices in your head. <laughs> like, and all of these tools were sanctioned by the Bible. <laughs> I gotta say, the weirdest thing that sticks out to me there is the, the finger bones. Yeah. Like, first off, why? Secondly, how the fuck did you get this shit? And how do we know it's legit? Like, what? <laughs> oh, because the Bible says so. Yeah. That's why. Okay. No, no, it's, it's basically, it's supposed to be, you're like, you're supposed to stick the finger bones in their mouth and it's supposed to piss off the demon enough to, like, shoot through your ears or some shit. Ugh. Like, <laughs> yeah. Getting back to Sarah, it took eight months for the priest to perform the exorcisms on her. So she was basically tortured for the eight months because they thought she was possessed. Her face was burned black because she was repeatedly subjected to the fumes that they burned. She was so worn out from vomiting constantly from the shit they had her drink. It was horrible. How did she not just straight up die? Yeah, and there's no proof of whether or not the rite actually worked for her. So it could have just been that the poor girl suffered through all of that for nothing. I mean, at that point, I'd be like, yeah, I'm demon free. I'm done. It's good. You you did it. And then just live with this demon for the rest of your life. You yeah. now made a pact. Like, <laughs> we can work together and get the fuck out of this and we'll just, we'll be fine. We'll yeah. live our life. <laughs> and not all exorcism worked out, but success meant not only proof that of the existence of demons, but also the church's ability to conquer the forces of evil. And as stated before, the right of exorcism has been on the rise even more so today. Yeah. So still, like, today the Catholic Church is like, we're the ultimate supreme, and because we can, like, get yeah. rid of demons and shit, and, like, more and more people are coming to them because they're like, oh, well, they're losing faith in God, so everybody has demons in them now. Like, what? <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty of different ridiculous. reasons why that would be spiking, and I don't think that that's the number one reason. Just gonna say that there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And as most people lived in fear of demons and did everything they could to avoid them, some people went actively looking for them. They attempted to conjure them and harness the power for their own ends, and most of the time, witchcraft was to blame. Shocker. (laughs) It was the biggest scapegoat to say that witches were in league with the devil and used his powers to cast diabolical spits. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) But a lot of people were accused of harnessing the power of lesser demons for the purpose of power and wealth, which was a crime that was punishable by death. So, like, even if somebody just went out and said, I think that, you know, they they got rich because they made a pact with the devil. All of a sudden, that person is sentenced to death. Wow. Just because, yeah. No proof. Mm-hmm. You're just dead now. <laughs> Dr. Peter Marshall, an expert in medieval occult studies, talked about another big problem that rose in the Middle Ages, which was necromancy. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Which is the art, uh, the dark art of conjuring up the forces of hell in pursuit for earthly power. So, he has a copy of the Munich Handbook, which is a collection of spells, the kind that were quite common in Europe in the late Middle Ages. What makes the spells dangerous is that they all involve the conjuring of demons to do your will. The Munich Handbook is only one of several necromancy textbooks that were hugely popular back then. It displays specific instructions on how to summon demons and harness the power to perform evil deeds like stealing treasure or harming other people. One of its spells is particularly disturbing, and it describes how you can force a beautiful young maiden to become your love slave. Yeah. (laughs) For this spell... Oh, here Jesus we go. Because <laughs> I actually did my research on it. For this spell, you need a white dove. You have to bite near its heart for the blood, and you use the blood to draw from a quill pen made from the feather of an eagle and written on parchment made out of the skin of a female dog in heat. I really thought that third thing was going to be another bird. I'm like, why? Why so many birds? <laughs> the dove is a symbol of Venus, the dog representing lust, and the principle being used is called sympathetic magic of likeness working on likeness. The most famous persecution of the use of necromancy was in Britain of Eleanor, uh, who was the Duchess of Gloucester in 1441. Along with Roger Bolingbroke, she was accused of using the dark art to obtain information that Henry VI would suffer a life-threatening illness. Eleanor was imprisoned for life, and Bolingbroke was hung, drawn, and quartered. Just for saying that they knew that the king was going to die this horrible death. Wow. Yeah, so... I mean, it could have been, like, a warning, like, 
save yourself, you're gonna die. Yeah, a warning, or they probably saw it as, like, I don't know, maybe an assassination attempt, which would make sense. <clears throat> kind of. If they had that type of knowledge, and then all of a sudden, the king, like, dies from this horrible thing, and it's yeah, just... like, it was you! Yeah. <laughs> no, I just, I tried to be, I was, I was being good. Yeah. <laughs> Back to the spell. With the blood, you draw on the parchment a naked image of the object of your desire. And crucially, you write on her limbs the name of the six demons to conjure, which are Shubal, Satan, Roix, Cupido, Aphalion, and... Doliatus, and specified that Cupido, so Cupid, essentially, is written across the genitals of the woman. Oh my god. Yeah. Interesting side note, because of the power ingredients in intracity of the spells, more than likely priests had to conduct the necromatic ceremonies, which makes it even more transgressive, because priests were thought to be highly skillful in the manipulation and control of demons, ironically, the perfect qualities for necromancy. So yeah, the people that have the power and point fingers at everyone else for being so damn evil are practicing necromancy. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> what irony there. Yeah. So, with the spell, sorry, I keep getting sidetracked. After drawing, an incantation is said, then the demons would appear in the forms of handsome young men who bring you the woman you desire and make her fall in love with you. If someone notices that the woman is gone, like a family member or something, one of the demons will take her form and go to her house and her place. Wow. Yeah. So, like, do pull in the whole... Switcheroo. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. like, then they're gonna think she's possessed. <laughs> For real, though. Full cycle. <laughs> this was the spell that confirmed that demons could take human form. Now, meaning that you couldn't tell who was real and who was actually an evil spirit in disguise. Apparently, however, demons weren't the only things that Christians needed protection from. Before we get too far into that, I would hate to be that demon that had to go to the person's house and pretend to be them. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be, like, the stupidest shit ever if you were a demon? Like, I got better things to do than sit here and pretend, pretend to be some pussy in her house <laughs> with her dumb family. You know. That would <laughs> oh suck. Like, I don't want to milk the fucking cows today. I want to conquer Europe. Like, what the fuck, Dad? <laughs> like, I understand why women are always so angry. You guys are fucking assholes. <laughs> Spirit possession of any kind, as I explained in the beginning of the episode, is defined as an unusual or altered state of consciousness and associates behaviors purportedly caused by the control of a human body by spirits, ghosts, demons, or gods. The concept of spirit possession exists in many cultures and religions, including Buddhism, Christianity, Haitian voodoo, Hinduism, Islam, Wicca, and Southeast Asian, African, and Native American traditions. So far, we've covered demons, angels, gods, ghosts, but what about fairies? <laughs> yes, I know it sounds so far off from the evil shit we've been yammering on about, oh, but sticking with the timeline of the Middle Ages, as of now, the Fae were a huge problem to try and avoid among the villages. I mean, the Fae can be extremely wicked. Yep, and you're about to hear why. Yeah. <laughs> The spirits of folklore from elves to fairies were also considered the stuff of nightmares. Literary expert Dr. Diane Perkis explains the forefathers' thoughts on what fairies were. She says, quote, The depicted fairies we see today come from the Victorians. Shakespeare made fairies small and flying, and the Victorians really picked up on that. Entomology artists drew wings on creatures and people because they wanted to add romanticism to nature. End quote. So... Basically, yeah, like, everything that you see today, like, Tinkerbell, all, like, little dainty things, stuff like that, like, that's not real fucking fairies. <laughs> that is it's not the fae. No. One of the most famous photos of fairies were the Cottingley fairy photos taken in 1917 by two young cousins in Cottingley near Brantford. The five images show the girls playing with dainty fairies at the bottom of their garden. Uh, it, this became a media sensation, making people believe that fairies were both gentle and very real. <laughs> but the images are fake, as are almost all depictions of fairies in artwork, like I said. In the ancient world, the origin of fairy beliefs are the nymphs of Roman mythology. Based on the elements, earth, air, fire, water, these nymphs would lure young men to be their sexual partner, then throw them away, pretty much like just killing them. Like, screw them and then kill them. 
Like, the Celts believe they are supernatural spirits in all aspects of nature. These spirits became mainstream folklore and gradually evolved into fairies, which are mystical beings who inhabited the natural world and, unlike the vaporous demons, would only appear to be seen when they chose to. It is believed that we live in a parallel world to that of the spirits, that we can potentially live side by side with these spirits unless you pretty much piss them off. They were thought to be able to ruin your crops with bad weather or kill you by causing a nasty accident. If you had a stroke, it was called a fairy blast. You or your children could get ill and become paralyzed, like all types of nasty shit. Yeah, like you really don't, like the gods, you don't want to piss off the fae. Like, <laughs> I gotta say, fairy stroke doesn't, I mean, a uh, fairy blast doesn't seem <laughs> as bad as a stroke. Fairy stroke. You smell toast. <laughs> Get some butter. The fairies really like butter. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I mean, that's not too far off. They like cream. Yeah. And like honey and stuff. <laughs> the <laughs> Honey butter. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Goes with the toast that you smell from the stroke. Yep. <laughs> I'm gonna die. The biggest fear that came from fairies, however, was that they could abduct your child and replace it with a changeling, a fairy that had taken the exact form of your baby, and the other fairies whisked away your real child with them to the woods. In medieval England, the fear of changelings were so strong that many parents took extreme measures to prevent it from happening. They would put cold iron around the baby's cradle. Iron shears were favored because shears themselves are magical. They can be used for divination to find stolen things. They are considered very powerful, so the shears were put at the head end of the crib. Iron itself is considered the most magical thing that people had then because the manufacture and shaping of iron was itself a bit of a mystery. Most villagers wouldn't have known how to shape iron. Other things like horseshoes were placed around the crib, and because of that little tidbit comes the legend that fairies have an extreme aversion to iron. Like, so it came from all that because villagers were basically too broke and not knowledgeable enough to learn how to make or shape iron. So to so them, it was, it was like mystical, magical. Yeah, it was this like super powerful thing that could use as protection from evil shit because it was something that was so off the wall for them at the time. I wonder if that's also the we got to look into the origin of the silver for those kinds of stories. Yeah, it, it makes that me might think be about similar. that. Yeah. yeah, if iron didn't work or wasn't available, the parents would draw a circle around the crib using chalk, drawing it clockwise while reciting some key prayers and connotations. It was supposed to be a protected area for the child, made holier by the child, that the fairies couldn't cross. But these measures were not guaranteed to completely protect your baby. That's witchcraft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, <laughs> as always, a lot of Catholics and Christians like to steal our shit. So, moving on. If your child developed physical or mental abnormalities, they were thought to be changelings. Psychologist Sherelle Shallow looked into the reasons why parents may have come into this horrifying conclusion of changelings. If a child is not speaking, not being able to hear or move, throwing tantrums, signs that today could be construed as them being on the autism spectrum or other devel uh, developmental disabilities. They were seen as not normal and obviously their kids were a fairy in disguise. Oh, well, that's yeah. not right. Mm -hmm. So because of that, there were tests to determine if your child was really yours. And the most ridiculous one, I think, is the test to make bread in an eggshell. What? Like, yeah, okay, so <laughs> this was considered an impossible task to literally crack open an egg and put flour, yeast, and water mixed in as if you were making a loaf of bread inside the eggshell. If your baby laughed at you doing this action... <laughs> They were a changeling because something that is considered of human folly, so something off the wall ridiculous, and the baby found it funny, it's not really your baby. What? Which, but yeah. babies think everything's hilarious. Exactly. I was just gonna say, like, babies laugh at everything. So, what the hell kind of experiment is that? Like? I have a baby that laughs when nobody's doing anything. She'll just laugh because. She's a changeling. <laughs> I mean, she could be. I'd never <laughs> just the same. But. 16th century antiquarians like Reginald Scott recorded the, the folk beliefs in villages across the nation. It was believed that to get their child back, the human parents would threaten the imposter, so their baby, with death, what? And the fairy parents would come to rescue it and return the human child at the same time. Yeah, this is where shit gets dark. 
this is what I mean by, like, don't fuck with the Fae. Oh, my God. Like, there were usually two options for this. One, you could take the baby and leave it in the woods, ideally on a dung heap, hoping this would terrify the fairy parents and take it back. And two, you hold the baby close to a fire, hoping that the sight of it would frighten the fairy baby so badly that they'll reveal themselves as a changeling and fly into the air. With these methods, the deluded parent actually thought they were rescuing their real children. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. And of off of this belief, unfortunately, many babies were burned to death or died in the oh. woods. Yeah. And, um... I mean, the fire thing is obviously much worse, but, like, leaving a baby on a pile of shit, that's awful. Yeah. To starve to death in the woods. Oh, my God. And we'll never know how many of these babies died because these events were never reported as infanticide because it was thought to have been a fairy that died and the human child was just still missing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so, like, countless babies frickin' died from either starvation or being burned, and they weren't... None of the parents were held responsible because they, they weren't... wasn't their kids. It was fairies. Yeah. What an easy way to get away with murder. Shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, this belief in changelings stemmed deep into the modern era as well. The last recorded case was in 1895. In Bolivadley in Ireland, a woman was killed by her husband because he believed her to be a fairy changeling. Historian professor Angela Bork studied the court case and testimonies to reveal what really happened. A young woman named Bridget Cleary, between the ages of 26 to 28, doesn't really specify, mm -hmm. uh, lived on a farm with her husband. Their house was built near a fairy fort, and fairy forts were remains of medieval hill uh, settlements, so like just busted down stonework and stuff like that. It was believed that fairies lived beneath these ruins, and having a house near one of these forts or disturbing one meant bad luck. Newspaper reports said that Bridget had visited the fort shortly before she died. And this is just off of like hearsay and people saying that they saw her go into the woods and shit. So if you visited one of these places, you were labeled as turning your back on human society, that it was dangerous and you were consorting with the fairies. You became instantly distrusted by everyone. Oh my goodness. So, yeah, and one day Bridget had left her house saying that she was going to sell the eggs from the farm, but some people suspected she went to the fort instead. When she came back, she got ill with a fever. Her husband claimed that she was two inches taller. This was his basis that she was a changeling. Oh, like, no. she just walked in the door and he's like, You're two inches taller, you're a fairy! Like, what the <laughs> Yeah. Off of nothing else. today, babe. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, damn, I won't wear my fucking pumps anymore. Shit, I thought you'd think they looked nice. <laughs> yeah. You're trying to kill me now? Like, she had been sick in bed for several days, and then relatives showed up, mostly men, to come visit her and help. Michael, her husband, had an herbal potion to try and feed her, with the thought that if she could swallow it, the creature would disappear and Bridget would just come waltzing in through the front door, like nothing ever happened. Huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> when that didn't work, the men picked her up and carried her over to the hearth and held her over the grate close to the flames. Her father, like, yelled at her, Are you Bridget Cleary in the name of God? And she screamed back over and over, Yes, Dada, I am Bridget Cleary. And the men were like, Okay, she's legit. And they just put her back in bed. <laughs> like, they carried, they go, like, freaking carried this whole ass woman, like, over to the fire and held her there and was, like, freaking the fuck out. And this poor woman, like, delirious with fever. Yeah. It's just, yeah. <laughs> but the next night, Michael and Bridget's relatives became suspicious once again when Bridget refused to eat the food that Michael prepared for dinner just because she didn't want to eat because, you know, having the death flu and all. Like, <laughs> I mean, that and they've been shoving things down her face and, like, holding her in front. I wouldn't want to eat after that either. I need time to recuperate. Yeah. <laughs> but Michael thought that a real woman would obey and eat the food her husband made her. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> he then knocked her to the ground and brandished a burning stick from the fire and waved it in her face. He picked up the lamp next to him and poured oil from it all over her, and then she just went out of the place. Oh, no. Yep. So Michael and the relatives were all arrested for murder. Michael was convicted of manslaughter, but not murder. This happened because his testimony that Bridget was a changeling was considered in the verdict, as was his behavior after the murder. So the lawyers and the jury me. was just like, oh, you think she was a changeling? Maybe we should think about that one trying to turn her. 
Like, yeah. So, what he had done after he killed her... Anybody can claim that they think someone's a changeling and just take them out. Like... Yep. What the fuck? Yeah. Now, and what he had done after he killed her was he went back to the fairy fort where he thought she was and waited for his real uh, wife. He envisioned her riding back with a horde of fairies on horseback and would take her down off of the saddle and into his arms as he fended off the fairies to take her back home and he would have his wife again, not the imposter that he burnt alive and buried in a shallow grave. Like... (laughs) So, first off, why would they bring her back in the first place? Like, you just, if that at all were true, you just burned one of their own. They're not going to give you your shit back. You know. (laughs) Is that how it works, buddy? Sorry. Like, your wife is dead now. Mm -hmm. Whether you killed her or they killed her, either way, she's dead. Yeah, (laughs) and after all that, for like many, many years after that people all over that village still widely believe that fairies had replaced Bridget's body in her grave, and the real Bridget is still off with her fairy lover in the fort. Oh, what if he was a friggin' fae? Yeah. Like, <laughs> he went to the fort. Yeah. Why do they trust him? I have no idea. That's a, That's a good fucking question. Dumb. <laughs> Guess what? That's right. You just finished listening to part one of the episode. Surprise! Surprise! Next week, we will be getting into part two to let you in on all the juicy tidbits of real documented exorcisms that will hopefully scare the shit out of you. (laughs) And also be a part of our Hellfire Hotties game show. Don't forget to follow us on Anchor and click the links in the show notes to hop into our Facebook group and pick up some merch through the official Something Wicked store. Ladies!